Welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scotch Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. And joining us this week is David Stewart. Each episode will invite a special guest to join us on trawling through the magazine and discussing anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article to a photo to a competition to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! So as I said, a special guest this week is David Stewart. Welcome, David. Thank you. And thanks, thanks for coming along. Well, it's great to be here on a Sunday morning. Yeah, that's uh, very, very nice of you to come out in, in this lovely weather as well. Um, so, regarding yourself, you do the Scottish Epistles thing. Um, I first saw you on Facebook, and it, that, that's where it was. I absolutely loved what you did. It's a lot. Of, it's all Scottish-based stuff, and I think I, I don't know. If if I was if I helped, but I certainly encourage you to try and come onto Twitter and, and and you've been on there and for me, it's it's one of the best accounts on there. So absolutely brilliant. Um, well done for doing that. Uh, thanks. It, it took us years to go on Twitter. I didn't understand it to yeah. be honest. Um, we started five years ago on Facebook and originally I wasn't on the page. Someone else had to do it for me and Robert Marshall, who we do the Epistle Magazine with. Um, eventually, I got on his social media and. Couple of years later on to Twitter, and then my life's hell. But, uh, <laughs> Are you enjoying it? I enjoy it most of the time, yeah, you know. Yeah. But see, when you you've got so many notifications and you're trying to catch up, the same yeah. as everyone, you know. Yeah. You miss so many good things as well. Is the feedback you get from people good? Is that enjoyable? Uh, mine's is fairly positive. I, I I don't tend to get a lot of people being negative mm-hmm. about the stuff, you know. Well, negative about Alan Ruff, mind you, but that hurts. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel the same about that as well. It's like, you know, I I, I hate when it becomes a bit personal um, with um, responses and stuff. And it's like, you know, it's in the, you know, it's from the past. Just, you know, enjoy the memories. I think a lot of people maybe, it's maybe not their own opinion. Maybe they've, they've, they've read stuff or taken stuff and suddenly it becomes their opinion about what that player was like. Um, Alan Ruffius that you've mentioned there gets so much hard hard um hard press or hard um stick on there. But the fact is he he was the Scotland goalkeeper and he was playing part time football at the time. So I mean that's some achievement. It was. I mean you think of the likes of Jim Lee and you think of Andy Gorham, you think, oh great goalkeepers. These are guys that have been coached all the way through their careers. Alan Ruff was probably just sent to, you know, We'll stick a couple of jerseys down and shoot in at Allen, yeah. you know, up at yeah. Burkill Park. Yeah, I mean, there was a, there was an article in, a, in another shoot that I read recently, and and the, the it sort of I'd never really thought about it, but it sort of the ending shot on it was, um, and we'll, it, you were left wondering what Alan Ruff would have been like full time coaching and full time training, and it's like because he did have these opportunities, or at least there was sniffs. Of going down south, I remember there was a, a link to Liverpool, and I think maybe uh, Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough. Um, so uh, you know, as one of these things, you think, well, if if he'd if he'd went full time, if he if he'd got this training, then 
you know, if he concentrated on that, then who knows? I mean, that's, it's, it's one of these questions, who knows? So the, the magazine we're going to look at this week is, um, it's Goal Magazine, and it's from the 9th of May, 1970. Uh, so Goal Magazine was first published in August of 1968 and ran until June 1974, and a total of 296 weekly issues um, were published. Published by IPC, um, and it was printed by Oddhams. The launch party was at the Savoy in London and featured the Goal Girls as part of the, the razzmatazz of the, the launch. Um, later on, Goals was incorporated into Shoot magazine um, in 1974. I mean, basically that meant that Goals it just ceased to be. Um, personally, I don't remember there being much of a difference in Shoot when they started putting Incorporated by Shoot, it was it must have just been about taking the staff in and then, you know, just that was it. So I don't ever remember much much difference from that. Um, so on the front, Goal proudly declares itself as the world's greatest soccer weekly, um, which is quite a, a bold statement. To be honest, I wouldn't really argue too much. I mean, I, I really enjoy looking at these magazines. So we'll look at, this is issue number 92, it's 1S and 6D, so that, that's the price of it. So one shilling and six pence. Now, I didn't, I, I'm from a time where I wasn't really involved in this whole money, but I've, I've done a wee bit of research on it. So there was 12 pence and a shilling and 20 shillings and a pound. So one shilling and six pence was 18 pence, um, which is the equivalent, current equivalent of a pound and six pence. So, uh, does that make sense? Like you said, I'm old and know that. <laughs> I'm looking at Tom. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So, you know, value for money, let's just call it that. We've got a picture of Jimmy Arfield, from, uh, he was a Blackpool, Blackpool in England player, um, on the front cover. And I think generally it was the same sort of style of front covers for goal. It was a round, so it was a, a coloured background with, a circle, and within the circle was a picture of a player or, uh, you know, the a, a situation, things that I don't think very often it was a full page, um, a full page image that I can remember. And that, as I say, that was just a style. Um, so there's a couple of features it mentions as well. There's a World Cup art gallery, and they talk about Huddersfield's great triumph, um, and there's a cup final inquest. Looking inside. The magazine starts off with Goal's opinion piece. So they talk about the real winners of the FA Cup being the FA at Lancaster Gate, who were counting the windfall after four semi-finals and two finals. This is the FA Cup that I think Chelsea beat Watford 5-1 and then Man United played Leeds, which went to three games. So Man United drew Leeds 0-0. They then went to Leeds, nil-nil again, and then it was a 1-1 game. Um, so there was quite a few replays going on there. Now, the the eventual game that, that finished was, wasn't played at Wembley. All those games weren't played at Wembley, sorry, but the proceeds, I guess, mostly went to the FA. So I think, you know, they're, they're sort of wringing their hands with the, the money that came in from it. Now, Goal was suggesting that this money should maybe be put to improving Wembley. Um, say the pitch is not in great condition and they asked what could be done about acquiring more money um, put towards the work that's already planned. Um, so there's 
there's a lot of there's a lot of information going on there. So the the cover there's also a section that talks about the cover. So Jimmy Arfield, um, he was Blackpool's promotion ace. So he was born in 1935, died age 82. Played for Blackpool between 1954 and 1971. 569 league appearances. Um, he was a right back. He had nine under 23 caps for England and 43 full caps between 59 and 66. And he also managed Bolton Wanderers between 71 and 74 and Leeds United between 74 and 78. So, you know, he's one of these one-man club, you know, one-club men. Uh, 17 years at Blackpool, which is some going. Um, he was part of the Blackpool side that finished in their highest ever league position. They finished up runners-up in the 55-56 season. Um, and he was voted Young Player of the Year in 1959. Now, Blackpool they achieved little success with Armfield. They won the FA Cup the year before he arrived, so he missed out on that. And they won promotion to the First Division in 69-70. Um, he did play in the 1962 World Cup in Chile, and it was included in the 1966 squad, but an injury prevented him from playing. Only the 11 players, an interesting fact, it was that only the 11 players who were on the pitch in the 1966 World Cup actually got medals. So he he didn't he didn't get a medal, but in June two thousand and nine, all the squad members, including Armfield, were presented by Gordon Brown at Downing Street. So they eventually did get medals, which was, you know, it's a strange sign to be able to you know win in the World Cup and not getting that. We'd have included Jimmy Greaves as well, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so Armfield replaced Brian Clough at Leeds. So you know Brian Clough's um, infamous spell at Leeds. Um, it was Armfield that actually took over and he led them to the 74-75 European Cup final where they lost 2-0 to Bayern Munich and he was replaced in 1978 by Jock Steen who would, like Clough, only be there for a matter of weeks. Um, they were both 44 days. 44 they were both days. Yeah. It's, it's so strange, that, isn't it, that the both of them were the exact, exact number. Uh, although I think Steen's period there wasn't as interesting as mm. Clough's. Yeah. Um, so Anfield became a journalist at the Daily Express between 79 and 91, so that was quite a long period there. And he died of non-Hodgkin lymphoma in his throat. Um, there was a statue unveiled to him in 2009 outside Bloomfield Road. And in September 2019, the FA unveiled the Jimmy Arfield Lecture Theatre at St George's Park. So even though you know, he didn't win, you know, he, he didn't have many honours in terms of titles and cups and things like that he was obviously you know well thought of and well well uh, you know he's admired through the game so there, there was a statue involved and he did get this lecture theatre named after him they talk about his career and how vital he was at getting Blackpool up to the first division and so you know Jimmy Anfield that's a any thoughts on Jimmy Anfield he was a wonderful football commentator as well um, you know just had a nice phrase to him and a nice, I suppose, well-mannered, but, you know, he knew a lot about the game, mm-hmm. you know, when he spoke. Okay, so we then move on to Bobby Charlton's diary. So it's a Down Mexico Way. That's the, the title here. So this was a bit of a regular feature in goal, um, the Bobby Charlton's diary, and there was other players who did similar things. He starts off by stating that the time... The, the reader reads this, that Celtic will have already learned their fate in the 1970 European Cup final. So, um, you know, the time he's writing the article, 
the time that the article comes out, Celtic will have played um, European Cup final. Um, as we know, they were defeated 2-0 in that final. England... 2-1, wasn't it? 2-1. Was it 2-1? Yeah. Sorry, 2-1. Yeah, took the lead, I think, didn't they? Yep. Yeah. Okay, so um, he also says that at this point, England will be settling into their Mexico City Hotel and preparing themselves for the, the World Cup later that month. The idea is to get accustomed to the training and playing at high altitude. So England have got, you know, decided to go there early, get accustomed to the weather, get accustomed to the, the altitude. They're going to play a couple of friendlies in Colombia and then on to Ecuador for more games, all played at altitude. Um, and he says that the for the past 12 months, all players likely to be in the squad have been receiving regular injections. So I guess, you know, if you were getting injections back at that time, you, you had your hopes up that you were going to be going to the the World Cup for England. It'd be, you know, it'd be quite interesting to try and find out which players were getting those injections that didn't end up going. He talks about when England were in Troon preparing for a Scotland game recently and all the players were given a gift of haggis by staff at the hotel. Um, he also mentions that he loves his stuff, so he was delighted. Um, he was first introduced when a family friend bought back some from Scotland a few years before. Uh, he thought it was delicious and he always brings some back whenever he visits. Um, uh, he, was he was also presented a limited issue plate to celebrate his 100th cup, his 100th cap even, by a Staffordshire company. Um, and I wonder if he ate his haggis on the plate. That's probably the best way to do it, I think, rather than out the tin. <laughs> Talking about, no, I say the reason I said the tin there is because I got, um, we, we, we did a, a food drive thing for Clyde Bank mm -hmm. um, for, for Christmas there and I saw a couple of, of tins of haggis and I've no idea what it's going to be like but I thought somebody somewhere is going to enjoy haggis for Christmas and they were in a tin. Have you ever tried it a tin? Probably. Really? Oh, I think I've had yeah. not a tin. Yeah. I've never. Yeah, there we joy. go. So you've got a column here from Goal Editor Alan Hughes, and uh, now this is a this is a week where there's three British teams in European finals. So you've got it's just prior to the European Cup final, but Manchester City have won the European Cup Winners' Cup, and Arsenal have won the the uh, the Fairs Cup. So th uh, three British teams in European finals, and this happened again in 1972 when Wolves and Spurs played each other in the UEFA Cup final and Rangers were in the Cup Winners' Cup final. Uh, and it happened again 2008 when Man United and Chelsea played each other in the Champions League final while Rangers were in the UEFA Cup final. And, of course, in the finals we've just had, 2019, you had four English teams, Liverpool, Spurs and Chelsea, Arsenal playing. But I, I thought it was in interesting because he, he says early on, Celtic's achievements in the European Cup were fairly predictable. And they knocked out Fiorentina, Benfica and Leeds United to get to the final. And it's just interesting that it's just a sort of matter of, eh, Celtic yeah, made that. the European Cup final again. When I first read it, I thought at first they must have been knocked out early or something. <laughs> and I remembered what year it was. But again, it's just that like Celtic were doing so well in Europe at the time. It was just sort of, yeah, of course, of course they're going to they beat big European sides and, uh, and march, on the, march on to the final. But uh, so did you... Remember this sort of particular era, uh, David? And you were, I'm assuming you were young at the time. <laughs> We've all been young at the time. I mean, I just had my seventh birthday. Yeah, so I remember some things, you know, like, you know, going to school the next day after the cup final and 
you know, kidding on, I was over Kinval and things like that <laughs> when you score a goal, but didn't go down well with some people, but yeah. <laughs> you can't please everybody. And do you remember do you remember that final? I remember vaguely just yeah, yeah. the whole idea of watching it as a family and actually genuinely being disappointed that Celtic could beat, you know, because at the time they were a wonderful team to watch. Yeah. So just um, moving on to page five there, there's um, just at the bottom, there's this contest entry form. And this is um, the goal girl of 1970. Now this was another one of goal's regular features through the years. Um, it was the goal girl's competition. It was basically a beauty pageant um, that would likely make people cringe these days. Uh, now on the entry form, you get your normal details, name, age, address, occupation, who's your favourite player, Teams you support. Have you ever played football? Which maybe, you know, you know, women's football was on the go then, but you know, I don't think it was as popular as it is now. No. Certainly. Um, now it does say fill in the entry form and send it with two black and white photographs of yourself. One a head and shoulders portrait, and the other a full length picture of you in a swimsuit. So I think that sort of gives an idea of. Um, what these things were, and you know, a lot of us have seen these um, the the photos from subsequent um, months and weeks and things like that as well, and that is exactly how you would imagine it. It's it's basically uh, um, Miss World type things. Um, so uh, it's of its time, but I don't think you would see anything like that these days. No. No, I don't think you would be allowed to ask girls to send in full-length pictures of themselves in swimsuits. They'd certainly be frowned upon. Yeah. So the next one, um, it's the fans did it, says skipper Ron Harris. So this is talking about the FA Cup final replay uh, between Chelsea and Leeds, or the FA Cup final between Chelsea and Leeds, which went to a replay. So the first game was at Wembley, and... It, it was in April the 11th, and there was 100,000 fans there, and it ended up 2-2. Now, the replay took place on the 29th, so it was 18 days in between them. It actually took place at Old Trafford, and part of the reason being that the in the first game, I believe, the, the, the horse show, the London horse show or something like that, had taken place before the game, and it basically just ruined the pitch. So the pitch was in a, in a bad state. So they, they went to Old Trafford where they could only attract 62,000 people to come watch it. So, um, And in the end, Chelsea won 2-1. Um, so David Webb scoring the winner, David if I remember. Webb. Yeah. Um, the replay had become notorious. Um, apparently it's been, went down in history, as one of the harshest games in terms of physicality. Um, although the referee only booked one player. So, I mean, I think, again, that was a sign of the times. That, I mean, I, I remember um, seeing some Scotland-England games from the 70s and things like that, and some of the the challenges that would come in. Just meet, meet the challenges, not not brutal, not nasty or anything like that, but just, you know, whole-bloody challenges, and you think, you know, Gordon McQueen and Steve Capel or something, and it just gets up and gets on with it. And it's like, you just don't see that nowadays. So you can understand why there is this physicality but if there's only one booking, you know, it was a, a, a different... Well, there's a, there is a... On YouTube, there's a wonderful video of Eddie McCready tackling mm -hmm. Billy Bremner, and he's really just tackling him about his neck height. <laughs> 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 yeah. I don't think McCready gets spooked for it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, no, it I'm was not. very hard to get yeah. booked back then. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that was a that everybody was good, but yeah, they're absolutely right with that. Um, there's, now, a, there's another interesting video of an FA Cup tie. It's on YouTube of uh, Gordon McQueen punching his own goalkeeper David Harvey <laughs> in the face, and uh, doesn't referee doesn't speak to him, and and Harvey just seems to brush it off as well. Just yeah. Harvey pushes him, and yeah. McQueen turns around, punches him full in the face, and the two of them just go on with it and yeah. defend the corner. Now the, this this game, this, this um, the replay of the final was actually refereed by David Ellery back in 1997. And he concluded that there would have been six red cards and 20 yellow in the game, in the modern game. So, I mean, that, that sort of gives us an idea of how brutal that was and how, you know, as David said there, how how different things are refereed and, um, you know, six six red cards, 20 yellows. It's later on in the magazine, it's one of the wee small snippets. It's about Nottingham Forest have went something like, yeah. Is, is it 24 seasons without mm-hmm. having someone booked or something yeah, like that? It's something yeah, something crazy. Like, yeah. you, you can understand why. You know? <laughs> so the article itself that, um, here in book Chelsea is basically saying that Chelsea have arrived as a force in Europe. Um, they have been called the great unpredictables for years, but no more, says skipper Ron Harris. He reckons the fans deserve the praise for giving the team the will to produce the two performances in the final. Says we had an extra man and there was nothing the least could do about it. Of course, that would be Chopper Ron Harris. Yeah, you know. yeah, it, yes, not not quite as silky as um, as maybe some people would try and make him out to be. Um, but the photograph shows the three goals from the replay. Um, there's a open top bus celebration as well with Chelsea with the cup. Um, so we're moving on to there's an official. 1970 on the same page, so it's an official 1970 World Cup football medal. So, obviously, taking advantage of the World Cup excitement. Um, and remember, Re- England were reigning champions, so they were defending the crown in 1970, um, which meant there was opportunities for merchandise. Um, it says every fan will want to own the official medal of the EFSA. Now, I don't know what the EFSA stands for. Any thoughts? English Support Football Supporters Association, maybe? Um, I EFSA. think you've nailed it. You think so? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, on one side, it's got a self, Sir Alf Ramsey, and the other side has World Cup Winston, which is a British bulldog holding a round shield with a Union flag on it. They're done in a thousand sets of one silver and one bronze model. Uh, a medal, sorry, in a presentation box. That's for eleven pounds, eleven shillings, and zero pence. We'll leave the working out of that. Um, there's fifteen hundred silver medals in a presentation box, and then there's bronze medals in a plastic box. And there's a big price difference between the presentation box and the plastic box. So I'm reckoning that's a pretty basic one. Um, so, but can you buy it on eBay? I did. Did I have a look? Could I find? I think yes. The the the. I think the one that I saw looked as if it had maybe that it wasn't probably real sil- complete silver all the way through. Um, I think it had sort of been wearing away a little bit and chipped and things like that. So I, I, you can. Are you going to buy one? No. No. Okay. I'll buy a book instead. <laughs> uh, so next is the World Cup. Art gallery. So there's a few of these through the 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 magazine, and these are painted by. They've just got the initial D Collins, um, and it's of Peter Benetti. I thought that was Owen Coyle. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, but because, is this because of the ears or because everything else does look a bit like him? It does, doesn't it? It's... Yeah. I don't know if that I would recognise that as Peter Brunetti. So the name, maybe? I don't know. It's a fair fair enough likeness. I think if you take all the Clyde Bank Shopping Centre, people say own coil. Mm. Definitely, you know, yeah. you hide the name. Who is this? So, um, Peter Bonetti was, he was only five foot nine and a half, so he wasn't he wasn't the tallest of keepers. Uh, played for Chelsea between 60 and 75, just under 500 league appearances. Um, played some time St. Louis Stars in the States, and then back to Chelsea for an, another 100 appearances, and then moved to Dundee United, where I think he had five league appearances. I don't know if he had any cup appearances. Finished his career at Woking. I think he moved to Dundee United because I think he'd moved up north. Yeah. To, was he in Sky or Mull or somewhere? And he worked as a postman. Yeah. I believe. Oh, it was David Harvey. Uh, he, he worked yeah, as a postman well. as well, yeah. yeah. But... So, the he had seven English caps. So, you know, he didn't... But then again, you did have um, Banks as a keeper at the time, so... Well, he, he kind of mucked up in the... Quarter final in Mexico, Mexico as well, though, didn't he? Yeah, there was there was he talk of blame for some of the goals. Yeah, because we've we've discussed this a couple of times about um, when Clements and Shelton were sort of fighting for the for the the number one role. Um, Ron Greenwood started alternating them, and part of his thinking behind that was because when Benetti was called upon, he just wasn't ready, he wasn't sharp, he wasn't fit. So, you know, the, the thinking for Greenwood is. I'll make sure both my keepers are fit if we have to use them. So, you know, there is a wee, a wee nod back to that as well. Um, made a total of 729 appearances for Chelsea and, and only Ron Harris has made more. Um, after um, playing, he moved to Mull, as Tom says, and he ble- briefly came out of retirement to play for Dundee United. So there's a story about, about Peter Bonetti at Claybank. So in 1967, uh, Claybank played Chelsea twice in, uh, in friendlies when Tommy Doherty was the manager. So it, Tommy Doherty, for some reason, had a habit of bringing teams up to Claybank. So Aston Villa and Rotherham uh, both came up to play pre-season friendlies. But, so Claybank are playing Chelsea August uh, at Kilbowie Park and there's a patch of uh, grass in the, the goalmouth that's worn that's worn down and uh, Jack Steedman uh, the Claymont boss at the time has asked Alec the groundsman uh, uh, the grass hasn't grown so he said we're not having a, a patch this worn patch you need to paint it so what apparently Alex the groundsman goes out and gets green paint mixes it with grass and paints p- paints this bald patch in the six yard box and it looks great yeah. until apparently Peter Benetti dives on it and gets back up with his yellow goalkeeper jersey, which is then covered with green paint and, and, and yeah. grass. And apparently Tommy Docker was shouting, what have you done to my goalkeeper? <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, so, you know, despite only playing a few games for Dundee United, he, he somehow manages to get into the 1980 Panini Stickers album. Um, and one of these, the, the, but at that point in the Scottish world, it was like two players per sticker. So you, you've got Peter Benetti alongside uh, Jim McLean there. So, you know, but he also, as well as being a postman, he ran a guest house in Mull as well. Right. So, um, so next on, Jock Steen, we are so right to call him the big man. So this is written by uh, Ken Jones. Jock Steen, um, I mean, there's so much we could talk about Jock Steen. Um, youth career, Blantyre Vicks between 40 and 42. 
Uh, he went senior at Albion Rovers between 42 and 50, where he made 94 league appearances. Uh, went to Clenechley Town between 50 and 51, made 44 appearances there. And then he moved to Celtic and played there for between 51 and 50, 57. Uh, he did play for the Scottish League 11 once. Um, so he, he didn't. He, I don't think he was anywhere really near a uh, Scottish cap. Um, but then he moved into management. Started off at the Fairland for four years. Um, Hibs there for a year, and then moved on to Scotland for a, a brief spell. Um, then moved from there to Celtic, uh, sixty-five to seventy-eight, before his short spell to Leeds United, and then between seventy-eight and eighty-five, he was uh, the Scotland manager. Um, after a short time working in a carpet factory, he went down the pits to become a miner. Uh, he first played for Albion Rovers in November '42 as a trialist in a 4-4 draw with Celtic. He continued working down the, during the week as a miner after signing with Albion um, and had a brief loan spell at Dundee United in 1943, which I wasn't aware of. Um, he signed for Welsh non-league side Glen Eckley in 1950 becoming full-time for the first time in his career. Uh, they had big plans to, and they applied to join the English Football League, but the plan that was rejected. So um, there was a lot of players who then moved away and he would then join Celtic in December 51 as a reserve initially. But injuries at the club catapulted him into the first team and he was appointed vice-captain. And when Sean Fallon suffered a broken arm, the captaincy went to Steen. He retired from playing after a recurring ankle injury. Eventually, he had a bone nodule, which required removing. But then they found that he actually become septic and he was no longer able to flex a joint. So, you know, that, that certainly pretty much put paid to his um, playing career. He was given the job of coaching Celtic reserve team. Um, but, you know, for, for reasons which have, you know, been discussed in various other areas. He, he didn't feel as though he was able to progress um, due to him being a, a Protestant. Uh, March 1960, he became a Dunfermline athletic manager. Um, they were only two points off the bottom at the time and hadn't won in four months, but within the first six matches, understand, or they, they won the first six matches, understand. They won the Scottish Cup in 61 against Celtic. Um, Hibs and Newcastle both offered them jobs, but they were... Uh, rejected so he didn't want to go the family were on the up and Hibs came back in for him um, and after they got to the, his manager uh, Walter Gambraith at the time in 64 he moved to there um, they were sat in 12th position and he invited Real Madrid over for a friendly in Edinburgh and they won 2-0 uh, Wolves then came knocking on the door for Steen but um, he was asking his advice on the move from Bob Kelly to Celtic and mainly he was trying to get an offer from Celtic, um, where Kelly offered him a coaching and assistant role at Celtic, but Steen said he'd rather join Wills than come as a number two. And Kelly eventually agreed to offer Steen the full control of the team. So he left in 65 with Hibs near the top of the league um, and in the semi-finals of the Scottish Cup. And Steen's statistics at... Hibbs is actually the best ever manager with a, a 62% win rate, which is, you know, I mean, how impressive is that? Uh, he reflected back on leaving Hibbs the way that he did. He says, um, it was probably my most, most embarrassing experience in football. So I think this whole thing is, 
you know, he was he was sort of playing Celtic to get the right, you know, the move that he wanted. Um, and there wasn't really much, you know, consideration there for Hibs. So he did, I think he felt a wee bit embarrassed about that. So yeah, he became Celtic's only fourth manager in the history and apparently introduced a tactical advice to players which they'd never had before, um, which just, you know, to us it just seems really a strange thing that, you know, Celtic had just played and probably most other teams had played before that. We just probably, listen, go out there and, and play and be better than them. So Steen introduced all that. Celtic won the league championship in 66 for the first time in 12 years um, and he guided Celtic to, as we know, 1967 European Cup success, being the first British team to do so. And they won, won the domestic treble that year as well. And pretty much they won everything that they entered that year. He was awarded as CBE in 1970. Um, apparently he'd been knighted had it not been for four Celtic players. He would have been knighted had it not been for four Celtic players being sent off in the infamous Intercontinental Cup against racing that we, we spoke about earlier, Tom. So I, I find that a strange thing that simply because some players, it must have been such a a huge thing back then if it, if it stopped them getting a knighthood. Yeah, any any rec any recollection or any you know of hearing about that before? No, I mean I, I have I have heard that 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 was the thing that stopped him getting a knighthood, but mm. I, I couldn't say definitively or any. I, mean, I, I think people have got knighthoods for for a lot worse yeah, yeah. since then. So um, you know maybe maybe a retrospective one um, should have been on the cards there. Uh, he completed a record nine in a row. Um, equaling Budapest and CSK Sofia at the time. I think pretty much there was the, a decline in attendances due to the extended success, and this led to league reconstruction in 75 to form the Scottish Premier League. And he was badly injured in a car crash in 75, nearly dying, and Sean, Sean Fallon assumed control as a manager with Steen returning for the 76-77 for the season. Uh, Celtic struggled in 77-78 and Steen was persuaded to stand down with Bill McNeil taking over. Steen thought he had an agreement to join the Celtic board of directors but he was offered a manage management position in their pools company which he rejected. That just seems, that seems absolutely bizarre to me that, you know, given what he'd achieved, that he wasn't um, given a, a place on the board or, you know, something a lot higher in the club than managing the pools. But, you know, uh, August '78, uh, Steen was appointed the Leeds United manager, and after 44 days, he left to become the Scotland manager. Anything you want to say about the, the appointment of Steen, the Scotland boss, at this point? Um, I suppose I think the biggest surprise was the fact that you know McLeod had come out of World Cup '78 without being sacked. Mm -hmm. um, the only it was it one game after he. It was Austria game where they could beat three two mm -hmm. in Austria. I think I think Steen had wanted the job the Scotland job before and I think the time was right for him at this point. Yeah. He'd obviously done it as a caretaker manager in sixty five, uh, where he managed both Scotland and Celtic at that point. Um hadn't been a great success, I would have said sixty five, because we never got to the sixty six mm. World Cup. But a lot of injuries had a lot to do with that as well. No, I think 78 and Jock Steed in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Good timing. Yeah. It was actually his 56th birthday that he was appointed on. So, 
I guess that was a happy birthday for him. His early results were, were poor. He didn't qualify the, in the 1980 European Championship. Um, we lost to Northern Ireland and England in the home internationals that year as well. Um, Scotland's forms improved and we finished top for the 1982 World Cup qualifying groups, having lost only once. Uh, 1986, Mexico qualifiers were such that we needed a draw away to Wales in the last game. Um, and as we all know, this was the, the game that Stephen would suffer a heart attack and sadly die at the age of 62. He was married to Jeannie for 39 years and had two kids, George and daughter Ray. Uh, Ray, who sadly died of cancer, age 59 in 2006. Overall, Jock had a 63.58% win rate at all clubs. I mean, that is outstanding. Mm -hmm. That's outstanding. I mean, I've, I've seen managers being quoted as having less than 50%, 32%, and people saying they had a decent win rate. I mean, 63% is just absolutely... And regarding honours, I, I started looking at the honours and I just thought there's just too many to mention. Yeah. So basically, he won, apart from a World Cup and European Championship, he pretty much won anything that he could do, I guess. Um so the the article itself talks about there appears to have been a good deal of indignation from England about Celtic's success, especially in Europe. Um, and apparently, Celtic fans have proclaimed a level of indifference at that. It's like they, you know, they, they didn't care the fact that they weren't getting the plaudits. Apparently, Jock Steen did take a bit of exception to this. Um, and he was known to aggressively admonish English journalists for what he feels was a lack of perception about, you know, the actual achievements that they, they, they you know, that they'd undertaken there, um, which is pretty much nothing new. Even today, English press and fans look down in other leagues, especially the Scottish league. So that's something that hasn't changed. Um, and it's a thing that I've I've touched on a few times. I just think that the higher the... The higher the division, the bigger the team, the more money that's in the league, that these fans somehow have this perception that they have a better understanding of football than, you know, fans that are a wee team, like I've said a wee team, teams like Party Thistle, teams, the junior team, that absolutely isn't the case. It's just because you follow a big team in a big league doesn't mean you know football better than somebody else. And is that... Yeah, sort of perception I, you get. I think we all went to school with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Steens comes across as actually, he's, he's very supportive of all British clubs, um, but he does think that Celtic's achievements deserve more um, recognition. Um, after 67 success, reaction was a bit of a whimper um, as compared to when Man United won the following year. It suggested that Jock's approach to the game um, had even meant that the opposition had come to this. So the way that Jock's team was played and things like the opposition, or the opposition fans actually respected it. And um, there is mention here, and I don't know how I don't know how true this is, but I have seen it from multiple uh, multiple different sources that when they played Leeds United in the semi final in 1970 at Hamden, there was a lot of support for Celtic there from, including Rangers, but from other teams. And I think a lot of the credit goes to the way Jockstein played the game and the way that he, he held himself and, um, you know, you know, talked about the game and 
talked up the game. So I think there were. Is that a, is that a, a thing that happened? Do you think about? I mean, I've, as I say, I've I've seen anecdotal evidence about it. But do you think Rangers fans turned up to cheer Celtic against Leeds that night? I think maybe Rangers fans went along to a big game. Um, I don't. I, I, I couldn't say. I wouldn't think there would be. Rangers fans going to support Celtic, but uh, but you know, I've, do Celtic fans support Rangers in Europe? Vice versa, maybe in those days. I, I would have possibly. thought in those days, particularly in big games like that, where it was a Scotland versus the champions of Scotland yeah. versus the champions of England. England was a big thing. Yeah, you know, so I would imagine. Certainly, I wanted Celtic to win. You know. And, Things like mm. that, being a Thistle supporter, it wasn't always. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd <laughs> like, I'd like to think it was true, yeah. and, and I probably think it was. And I think also, for a lot of people, it was about going to a game. Um, nowadays, you can just go home, switch on the telly, and you've got a choice of four or five games probably any day of the week, any night of the week. Whereas back then, that wasn't the case. Um, I, I, I presume the game wasn't on live on TV. Would that be the case? Um, I think was it undelayed. Transmission, that game. So you know, so basically, you know, people finish work and think, "Oh, there's a game of football down at Hamden. Let's go and watch that." And um, as you, you're right, I mean, saying that it's it's at that point, it's it's about the way rivalries, you know, go out. If you can you can have a rivalry with somebody in your street, and then those two people get together to have a rivalry with somebody down another street, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, you're one town against another town. They come together then it's county versus county it's country versus country you know so I think at that point it was about a Scottish team against an English team so yeah I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this that think that's ah, a load of rubbish that's a load of rubbish and you know I get that I get that and to be honest I, I feel a bit like that myself at times as well it's like I think part of the part of the thing that makes football so different from so much else through history is the rivalry of things. That's what gives it the passion. That's what gives it this this lasting factor. So I think if you take that away, it just becomes it becomes you know tennis or cricket or something like that. Which I, I mean, you're talking the, about these half and half scarves and yeah, yeah. Community. It's like that. That just absolutely, you know, it, it brings it brings everything right down to just a. You know what I mean. So, on the same page, um, so there's an advert here. Well, sorry, I was, I was going to say before we move sorry. on, uh, so that, that feature in Jockstein is written by Ken Jones, yeah. uh, who was a football journalist with the with the, the Daily Mirror. He passed away, actually, only a few months ago in September 2019. But but one really interesting point, he was a player with a South End and got, a, got an injury, but he took his coaching badges and he was asked to manage Cyprus in a one-off uh, international against England in 1975 and apparently Don Revy who was the England manager uh, fell out with him apparently they were, they were good pals but yeah. he thought him managing Cyprus for that one game was a betrayal really and he fell out with him there's more to hear about Don Revy than you know <laughs> there we go so the Olympic muscle men it's an advert it says reveal sensational training secrets um, and do you know who the the man is. I, do you know? I, I never even thought about even asking. He sort of. He looks like a. 
he looks like a footballer. He's not going to be a footballer, but he reminds me of someone, and I'm trying to think who it is. But on you go, tell me who is he Dave, actually is. Is Dave Prowse? Dave Prowse. So D- Dave oh, Prowse. Oh, surely you know who David Prowse is. Come on. He was a well. He was a he was a, a bodybuilder, but he's he's most famous as Darth Vader. Ah, uh, all right, the all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they couldn't use his voice because it was aye, it's from the, it was, the West it was country. The West country, yeah, yeah. And he was also in a Clockwork Orange. Oh, did, there we go. And he was a Green Cross Code man. Green Cross Code Diana man. Diana most famously yes, in my uh, famously in my eyes. Um, so picture a uh, picture him there flexing up, um, but it's actually for a bull worker, and it says for basically for only five minutes a day you can have that body. Um, now, I there was a, a bull worker appeared in my house magically when I was a wee boy, and I've, I suspect it was my oldest brother um, who brought it in. But I remember, I don't know if you have you ever. You I think, think my big brother had one too at yeah. one point. Uh, did you ever try it though? <laughs> <laughs> I could barely push it. <laughs> well, is that, yeah, exactly. It was. Um, There's a lot of so. If anybody doesn't know, it was um, it was this metal, it was sort of metal tubes that went in each other, and there was a, a spring mechanism. So there was some, you know, um, and there was like plastic handles at the end. And what you're meant to do is just sort of push them together and get that tension and it'll build up your strength. And I think there was a, there was um, um, not um, the elasticated. Uh, string things on them as well so you could pull them apart to try and push the the metal tubes together as well um if 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 you have no idea what these are i've no i'm sorry if i've been no help to you at all in describing it um but i remember just like you said they would try it was like could barely barely shift it and i think i probably ended up mostly putting one end on the floor and using both my hands to push it down, which was doing me no good whatsoever, but it was like, come on! Um, Yeah. I I don't know how many people... Again, it would be interesting to know how many people used this and actually benefited from it, used it enough and used it and actually ended up, you know, going, oh, yeah, I can can see the difference. So, like... There's that film, Jordi, isn't there? What's that? Jordy, the film for the 1960s. Yeah. What's that? Bill Travers, is a wee boy, starts off and uses the Charles Atlas right. exercise goes, goes regime and goes to the Olympics. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of Charles, Charles Atlas, so I, I'm not aware of the Jordy land. Jordy. Just Jordy. Right, okay, I'll make a wee note. Watch Jordy. Um, so, if we, so if we digress away from the magazine sure. for a moment, so I am holding in my hands Scotland Glory Tears and Souvenirs, which David you've co-authored, yeah. uh, and I think there's a, there's a sequel out as, as well, isn't there? Yeah, Scotland Club Country and Collectibles. So I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about this book. So basically, what this book is, if people don't know it, it's basically Scotland International Football Memorabilia. It's pictures and. Uh, it's pictures of programmes of beer mats, uh, photographs from games, sort of cards, picture cards of players, fanzines, and uh, there's a lot of uh, writing uh, about about all this mementos of Scottish football. You tell us a wee bit about what inspired you to put it together and how it all how it all came about. I suppose it all comes about from the fanzine itself, which Robert Marshall and I decided we'd. 
been writing for Thistle fans even. And Robert, Robert's a great Scotland supporter and he says, do you fancy doing a Scotland one? Are you OK? You know, as you do in the pub one night, you decide yeah. you're doing a Scotland fans and that's, that's where we started and then we decided the Facebook page and the guy that done the Facebook page said, it's not very good, can you do some <laughs> wee articles for it? So we started writing articles for it and before we knew it, we had this whole host of articles, whole host, and then we stuff. But alongside that, we were looking at books like Got Not Got, that you've probably yeah. seen, mm-hmm. Pitch Publishing. And Robert and I just decided, you know what? One will see if they'll let us do a book. So we sent it in, the idea for it. They came back and said, aye. I write, you know, <laughs> but wait till I will try writing this, you know, contract comes in, I will sign that. Ah, it's not going to happen. And we, we did it, you know, sent all the writing in, all the images, all our stuff, you know, so we had to scan all that. And you love scanning, Andy, anyway, don't you? Um, so we did all that. We're still saying to ourselves, nah, it's not <laughs> going to happen. We're going to read it and it's not going to happen. And, you know... Eventually, it dawned on us, God, this is going to happen, and it did. It, it wasn't the greatest seller ever, but it's, you know, it's something that we're very proud of. It's a great it's a great book for Scottish football fans. Right? It, it's, it's just unfortunate it's come at a time where there's not that many Scotland supporters <laughs> that there used to be, you know. Do you know um, what I'll say about this book and the other book is it's, it's absolute essential. For me, I think it's essential books to have if you're... A, Scotland fan especially, but even if you're not, if if you enjoy football nostalgia, if you enjoy everything about that, get the book because they're absolutely amazing and you know, well done to both of you for for those because um, I've as I say I, I instantly f- fell in love with what you did on Facebook mm-hmm. and when I found out about the the books as well and you know when you're on Twitter it's just you know it, it certainly is for me you're one of the best accounts on there. Just generally, but also for Scottish stuff. So it's, it's like work. yourself, Andy. Though I mean, it, it's ninety percent and ninety five percent of the stuff that I've bought to mm-hmm. put on. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So it's all stuff that I'm buying in. It's not. It's not so I'm on the internet and taking for other sites and. We, saying, we know about them, don't we? You know, <laughs> it's, you know, it's that. Oh, I've got to share this tonight. You know, yeah. and see, I, that, when did you start collecting stuff? <sighs> Collecting stuffs, it, it it's kind of funny. I, for a long time, I, I collected records, and you know, I got to this stage in I think two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when I had twenty thousand seven inch singles. I had three thousand LPs. I, I just suddenly realised I'd stop listening to music because I was always <laughs> I was always listening to stock new stuff that I'd bought and. I think it was rubbish. I mean, why did I need the complete 1980s top 20 singles? Can you imagine how bad some some of, some of them are great? But you know, I had 47 Shaking Stevens singles. <laughs> Do you know? I don't think Shaking Stevens even. <laughs> 47 Shaking Stevens. And I just had too much stuff, and it it, it just I just decided not. Nah, I need to. I need I to need find something else I need to, to change this. And then I, I did. I sold everything. I sold it dead. Dirt cheap, by the way. See, I cry half the time when I look at the prices of stuff yeah. and all that. But at the time, they knew vinyl was just going to shoot the moon and such. But um, 
and I was looking at football cards and started getting into that and then it was gathering bits and bobs. And I suppose it is that nostalgia thing. It's about that childhood thing. It's about, you know, your heroes when you were younger and it's about seeing them and then, as I say, those wee bits of adding stories and finding out wee different facts and yeah. just... Do you have a sort of favourite thing that you, you came across or, or you were you were eager to share in this in this book? I, I guess there's so many. That, uh... it, it's just funny because, you know, people talk about memorabilia and all the dear stuff. I, I, love, all the, I love all the cheap stuff. I, I just love getting photos of people who there's no many photos. Yeah. I, I do love the beard mats and things like that. And I, I still love, you know... In essence, just the football cards and getting that wee bit closer to that completed set. Yeah. You know, so that, there's plenty of stuff. It's not about that stuff that people are going to pay 50, 60 quid for. It's about buying that stuff at 2 99 that nobody else has seen on eBay because <laughs> it, the guys, you know, gave it a total misnomer of a name, you know. It's a whole Scotland thing. You're like, I'm getting that, I'm getting that. So, so what, one of my favourite things, one of my prizes is... As you say, it's, it's not an expensive thing. It's, it's quite rare. In fact, it's very rare. And it's a it's a Radio Rentals World Cup wall chart from 1982. Mm -hmm. And it mostly because it has a lot of memories for me. It's, I, I managed to get it off eBay, but I had it at the time. And I remember going down to the local Radio Rentals store. And for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what Radio Rentals is, it, it was basically a place you could go to rent TVs and record players and radios and things like that. But it went in, and presumably it was part of you buy something, you get a, a World Cup wall chart. Um, but we went in and just tried the luck, and I think we got two of them. And so you, you went through the World Cup and you were following it all and you're filling things in, and you're looking at it, and it's this, it's a big, big chart, big stadium scene in the, in the middle of it, and then it's all the flags around, and there's a bit where you can put the scores in. So even after the World Cup finish, I made use of it. I cut the little flags out and I played games and things like that. So it got my, my worth out of it. Mm -hmm. But when I started doing the collecting stuff and then I was reminded about it, I was like, I wonder if I can get one. And it took it took a while. There was because it was like Fuji, Fuji film equivalent. So there was different it was the same wall chart, but there was sort of different things that they were gonna and eventually I found a Radio Rentals one. I thought, I've got to buy that. And it's probably a fiver, if, if even that. And it's now framed and up in my my hallway wall. It's, it's that much a thing. It's, 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 it's not the most expensive thing. It's not, the you know, it's a lot of people would know about. For, but for me, it's it means a lot. The 82 World Cup for me was the, the best World Cup ever. I've got a lot of memories about the World Cup, a lot of memories just about how that summer felt, you know, the, the lovely weather and just it felt, you know, colours just seemed a wee bit more vibrant that, that year than it was something magical. What, a and Clyde Bank? <laughs> I don't know, I was from Drumchapel. Drum so. <laughs> I'm sure there was. But, you know, it was like, there was there was just, it was back when, in 10 years, I was 10 years old at the time, so it's probably quite a, a lot of things are quite magical mm -hmm. at that sort of age, so it was probably just a perfect combination of things. But, um, I mean, from, for me, that's I feel. I think we feel a lot the same about when it comes to nostalgia and things like that, and in, in the items. So I absolutely agree with you. 
In terms of the things you've collected, have you collected it all since? Or did you bring it in? Did you keep anything from when you were a, a nipper? Um, no, because a lot of the things, you know, because at one point I was, it, when I was young, I did collect the cards and I had all the cards, you know, mm -hmm. I did everything and I had lots more cards, you know, even your sweetie cigarette, yeah. Stan and uh, Stan Laurel, all the hardy ones, you know what I mean? I had all these silly ones as well, you know. But I swapped him because then my next love was football programmes. And then I swapped him for Marvel comics. And then I swapped him for records. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. so eventually I've now gone back to where I've... Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't think there's anything that I really kept. Was there anything, like I said, that World Cup wall chart for me, was there anything that you've collected since or you needed that you would like to get that you had as a kid and now you think, oh, that, that was special at the time? I liked the 1974 FKS World Cup sticker mm -hmm. book. It's, it's not a particular classic crayon. It's, but, you know, that is one that I'm, I'm ploughing through at the yeah. moment and it's, it's been a pretty slow process, you well, know, to tell you the truth. Chat. Let's have a wee chat at some point, see if I can help out in that. Yeah. See what I've got. Um, what about yourself, Tom? What's, what was your recollections of... What did you do? You collect cards, stickers as a wee boy? I and... collected football programmes. Right. And uh, sort of gave up because there came... Uh, we were talking about, about that um, before in another episode where you would send away for the uh, free football programmes to be a wee advert in the magazine. You would, send, you would get a wee bundle mm. of these random Stockport v Burry and uh, you know, Ipswich Town v Wolves kind of thing. And it was great reading about these games from down, from down south. Uh, so I, I had a, I collected football programmes and at the time when I went to see Claybank, uh, Claybank had a wee stall at the ground where they sold old programmes and that was the way I learned the club's history at the time as well through through buying. And Claybank didn't always have football programmes on a regular basis. When I first started going, they, they didn't have a regular programme. Then when we got up into the Premier League, there was a regular programme. Mm. But that's where I started learning about the club's history and different players that had played and the different games that we'd, that we'd been in. And so at that point, that was where I would spend my pocket money on my £3 or something like that. I would get, you know, the programmes from 1970 yeah. and 74, Hearts and the Scottish Cup 1974 kind of yeah. thing. And it would just be eight pages full of adverts, my ale and stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, so it was programmes. And again, I, I bought a lot of records when I was younger as well, seven inches and 12 inches, and I've got them all in the lock-up somewhere. And you, you just kind of go, they're not worth anything. Yeah. They can't be worth anything now. Nobody wants to buy them. Some Somebody somewhere will always want to buy them. Yeah. No doubt that. Let's, let's go back to the magazine here. So I'm going to jump to this um, this advert on page 13. Okay, so it's Boots 2000. Just six guineas. And it says, beneath this sleek exterior comes a wealth of technical know-how. Now, just by just by that information alone, if you can't see that, you'll have no idea what we're talking about. But it's um, it's basically a razor, an electric razor in a, in a case. Um, and it's six guineas. So I did, I did the maths. Um, six guineas is 126 shillings, which is 1,512 pence which in the equivalent, once again, we do this every single week and I say the same thing. So we do the inflation calculator based on what it, what it was and what it should be. And it works out as £15 in today's money. Now, that means nothing 
So I don't even know why we bother keep doing it because there's no way you would pay fifteen pounds for that. Do you think? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's boots branded. I, I, I've certainly, so. I've seen you know that type of razor. I, I've never been able to use an electric razor. Always too often the, the battery would go. You know things like that, and it'd be stuck to your chin. <laughs> Imagine that happened a lot with yeah. these things too. The, the, the worst thing I ever got, because this is one of the ones with the foil over the blade, yeah. and the worst, and I've never used it since because of this, and what happened is I got a crack in it or a wee chip, mm -hmm. and I didn't know, and I just put it in, and it just ripped my face day. I'm over-egging it here, but it, it, it did really cause me a wee bit of damage. So, um, But there we go. Six guineas, that's fair enough. Uh, so moving on, Goldman Robert Holmes says, so it's a, a little article with one of the the, the journalists, um, what if Harry Catterick, Ian Greaves, Jimmy Bloomfield and Jimmy McGuigan in common? So they are the managers of the four clubs that have won the four league championships that season. Um, but they also have another quality in common. Um, and that's dedication. So there we go. You can't it doesn't you can't do anything without being dedicated. That's what they're saying. So that season they all won the respective leagues. Um, just no doubt, quite... all sacked the following season. <laughs> yeah, um, Harry Catterick was born in nineteen nineteen, died in nineteen eighty five. So sixty five, not a not a huge age. Um, he was from Darlington. He played for Everton and Crewe. Not a not a great deal of games either. Uh, Fifty nine league appearances for Everton, twenty four for Crew, um, but then he managed at Crew, Rochdale, Sheffield Wednesday, Everton, and Preston. Um, his father, Harry Senior, was a player at Stockport. Um, he played for Man United in Stockport as well during the wartime period. Um, Ian Greaves was born um, in nineteen thirty two. He's from Ainsworth and Bury. And he died in 2009. And he played for Man United, um, Lincoln City and Oldham Athletic. And he went on to manage Huddersfield, Bolton, Oxford, Wills and Mansfield. Uh, he was ruled out, he was actually ruled out of travelling due to injury to Munich um, for the the disaster with Man United. So, you know, fate um, gave him a wee, a wee bit of help there um, through injury. Jimmy Bloomfield was born in Notting Hill in London. He was a inside forward and he was born in 1934 and died in April 83. So he was only 49 when he died. And he played for Brentford, Arsenal, Birmingham City, Brentford again, West Ham, Plymouth and Orient. And he's got two under 23 caps for England. And he managed the Orient, Leicester City and Orient again. And he was player manager at that period with Orient. And Jimmy McGuigan, our last manager who won the, the leagues that season or the season before. Um, he actually was born in Addywell in West Lothian. So we've got a Scot here. Started off playing at Hamilton Ackies between 46 and 47 and making 11 league appearances, scoring four goals. Went down to Sunderland for a couple of years and then moved to Stockport County. Uh, moved on to Crew Alexandria where he... Played 207 league games, 32 goals, and then uh, three years at Rochdale. Um, he had a total of 334 league appearances across all clubs with 48 goals. 
and he managed at Crewe, Grimsby, Chesterfield, Rotherham and Stockport. And before he actually turned pro with Hamilton, they played at Bonnie Rig Rose Athletic and he won the fourth division, as we say, in 69-70. So moving on to page 16. So this is Glory, Glory Gunners. It was a marvellous night for Arsenal, says Frank McClintock. Um, Arsenal win the first cup, or win in the first cup, meant an end to a barren 17 years at the club. Skipper Frank McClintock said, this was my fifth major cup final, and for the first time, I'm proud to say I finished in the winning side. Arsenal played Anderlecht in a two-leg final. Uh, they got beat by Anderlecht in the first leg 3-1, but then they won 3-0 at Highbury on the return leg. Um, McClintock says he was fairly confident they could pull back the result from the first leg, but he was e equally sure it wouldn't be an easy task. Now, that's just that's just your, your standard response. I mean, who's not going to say that? Um, he did think their defence looked suspect when high balls were pumped up to them. Um, Frank was born in 39 in Glasgow. He played at Shawfield as a youth and then moves directly to Leicester. So he didn't play pro in Scotland. He was at Leicester between 56 and 64, playing 168 league games. And then he had a spell nine years at Arsenal, where he played 314 league games. And finally, he moved to QPR between 73 and 74. He's got nine Scotland caps and one goal. And he's managed at Leicester and Brentford. So what are your thoughts on Frank at Scotland? Um, certainly in his his first period when he was with Leicester, he I think he came on I think his first appearance might have been the infamous game where he got beat four three by Norway. Uh, Dennis Law scored a hat track and then the last twenty, thirty minutes I think they threw away this lead and McClintock had came on and he got hammered by the press. He was very scathing in the Scottish press at the time, you mm. know, he said if you're no Rangers or Celtic and you're doing England, you don't get a mention. Um, if I'm right, he's one of the goal scorers in the famous 6-1 victory in the Bernabeu Stadium right. as well, um, which was quite a surprise, we can say. Mm -hmm. Maybe 6-2, actually. Yeah. Um, he did say, one of the things it says in the article is he, about him being to, or he'd been to Wembley four times and had lost... Four times, his next time, obviously, is when Arsenal do the double mm -hmm. uh, a year later. He then went on to play for Scotland after that, and he said, I shouldn't have went, I shouldn't have played. I was totally knackered after the whole season. And Scotland could beat 3-1 by England at Wembley. He said, I was just knackered yeah. all the way through it. <laughs> I can imagine, though, that, you know, how many players are, are going to say that? Mm -hmm. You get a, a chance and you take it. So um, it was 6-2, and that was um, Spain and... Yeah, yeah. His um, autobiography, True Grits, actually well worth a wee read. It's it's quite good. He, he's quite you know straightforward about things. It's, it's, I've always liked about him. You know, um, probably the only book that I've ever read where somebody used the term "fanny" in a book. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of fanny in a book at that time. You know, <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he did. He was quoted as saying at one point the majority talking about how forthcoming he was. The majority of the press had disappeared so far up the old firm's asses that they couldn't, they could never be objective about English-based players, and the SFA often treated as like shit on their shoes. Yeah. So, 
he was, you know, he was, he was, he, he didn't mince his words pretty much. Um, yeah, I've I've always liked him as a as a, a pundit and you know on the shows. So next up, uh, now we can face our fans by Bob Wilson. Um, so Bob starts off saying it really is quite unbelievable. Everything went almost as Don Howe had predicted. So in in the article, Bob is heaping praise on first goal scorer Eddie Kelly, who was a teenager at the time, um, and he reiterated that it was a le- relief and joy for the fans who'd gone 17 years without a trophy. So I mean, okay, Arsenal, the the in in the recent future they've been they haven't been perennial title winners and things like that, but they've been in and about there. Um, but to go 17 years without a trophy, I don't think even Arsene Wenger would have survived that. Um, so, I mean, that, that was quite a thing. So, Bob Wilson, let's have a look at Bob. So, who's going to be the first to tell us Bob's full name? Robert. Robert Primrose Wilson. Mm. Yeah. And the interesting thing about Prim, this is apparently, and I've never heard this before, it, it goes back to an old Scottish tradition where your middle name was your mum's maiden name. Now, I've never heard that before. My anyway. wife's middle name, sir. Is that right? Mother's maiden name. There we go, mm-hmm. that backs it up. That's, that's all I needed to know. So what would your middle name be, Tom? It would be Kelly, if, if that was a tradition. Thomas Kelly Brogan? Yeah. That's, that's a nice wee ring to that. Yeah. What about yourself, David? I'd be McClay. David McClay Stewart. David McClay, that sounds really Scottish, that, doesn't it? David McClay. Um, Andrew McNeilish Smith. It's, it's not, yeah, you say you got a better reaction out of me than I got out of you. So, but that, I, I agree with you, if, if nothing else. So, Bob Wilson, born in Chesterfield. Um, he played for Wolves between 61 and 63, never got any league appearances there. And then between 63 and 74, he played for Arsenal and 234 league appearances. Now, he only played twice for Scotland. I, I don't know, I always had in my mind that he was a Scotland goalkeeper so for... Tommy Doherty brought him in, is that right? Yeah, he, was, he along with Alex Cropley, was the first player to be capped who weren't born, wasn't born in Scotland. Hmm. He, it was through his parents. Um, he did only play a couple of games around about that time... You had Bobby Clark as well, who was playing. Um, I can't remember who. Ali Hunter, you know, and then I think eventually David Harvey. But I think for Wilson, it came towards the end of his career, Mm -hmm. which probably meant that he wasn't going to get that many games. Yeah, probably some Scottish bias as well about I think because he's although he, you know, loves Scotland and things like that. his voice never seemed to be very Scottish. You know, his way of talking is, yeah. you know. And I, I, I would admit to him. being, I would admit to being, before I started doing all the the Twitter stuff and, you know, learning about a lot of things that I really didn't have much of a, a clue about before, I was probably one of these ones that were in the camp, ah, Bob Wilson, never. But then, then I read quite a bit and listened to him and he did actually, he was proud of, Playing for Scotland, mm-hmm. he was proud of his Scottish ancestry and things like that. So it's like you sort of stand back and just go. And this is the thing we've spoken about before with Alan McLeod. You stand back and you just think, listen, I'm probably re- just regurgitating other people's opinions rather than making my own. So 
I think people have, I mean, generally people just have to do that a bit more. Go fact find, go find things out for yourself and come to your own opinion rather than just, you know, looking at something that's posted on Twitter, looking at something that's in a newspaper or on a TV or something like that and taking that opinion as, as your own. So, you know, it's a, it's a strong thing I say there, but I, it does apply to how I felt about Bob Wilson. I changed my mind towards him. I've warmed towards him. I think even... When he was on Grant, Grant well, football, he used to present football, football focus, focus, and yeah. that was my first introduction. It was one of those guys you just saw as a presenter of football focus, and then you went, Oh, do you play football? Mm. I suppose there's a lot of people maybe now look at Gary Lineker and just know him as a presenter of Match of the Day and yeah. you know, don't but, uh, associate him with his football career. Yeah. But that was for my introduction to Bob Wilson, and you saw him as English with an English accent, mm. you know, and no association with Scotland, and it was a sort of like footnote. Oh, you played for Scotland, did he? Mm. I mean, I always found, I always think I found him a bit dry and a bit sort of mm. not much of a personality there and stuff. Again, mm. but again, my opinions changed on that. Um, again, you know, but that was the presentation style of yeah. the, the mm. day. Do you know, I mean, it wasn't about. People giving opinions yeah, yeah, or people showing their personality. It was about delivering a, mm. a monologue. I mean, and, and he did he, he did that for a long time. Well, there were two well. different styles of shows. You had football focused, and then you would switch over for Saint and Greavesy on the on the other side, and they were two very different yeah. styles. Like you say, the more BBC dry style, and then Saint and Greavesy was a more personality led show. Mm-hmm. So just a, a little bit more information on Bob here. He was the youngest of six children. And two of his brothers were killed in the war. Did they all have the middle name Primrose then? That's a very good point. I'm guessing, shall we check in that (laughs) later on? Um, That's a good good question. One was a Spitfire pilot and the other was a rear gunner in a Lancaster. I mean, that's that's quite impressive. Um, His father wouldn't allow him to sign for Man United as he didn't think it was a reasonable job while he was a youth. Uh, he trained as a teacher at Loughborough College and he played reserve games for Wolves between 61 and 63. So earlier on we said he didn't have any league appearances but he was playing regularly for the reserves. Um, and he was actually the first amateur to have a transfer fee paid for him when Arsenal paid £7,500. Uh, he remained amateur for the first eight months at Arsenal before actually signing a pro contract. Pro contract. And it took him over four years before he became the regular first-choice keeper. Um, he was Arsenal Player of the Year in the double-winning season in 1970. Um, the rules, as we're talking about Scotland, okay, the rules were changed in 1970 to allow players to play for their parents' countries of origin if they had not already played for their own country. So that, that gave him the chance to there. He made his debut in a 2-1 victory over Portugal at Hamden, um, O'Hare and Gemmell with the goals. And he making made his second appearance in a two one defeat to the Netherlands in Amsterdam, uh, where George Graham got the Scottish goal there. As we've already touched on, he appeared as a pundit for the BBC during the nineteen seventy World Cup, and he became the host of Football Focus from nineteen seventy four to nineteen ninety four. He also presented grandstand regularly between the late eighties and early nineties, and he worked extensively on the the World Cup coverage for the BBC over many years. Later on, he moved to the ITV in the late ninety, late ninety four, I think it was, to present Champions League, the League Cup, and the FA Cup coverage. So he switched there. And the mid eighties, he was immortalised in Roy the Rovers, as we know, when he was signed by Melchester Rovers along with Emlyn Hughes, and Spandau, uh, Spandau, Spandau, 
Spandau Ballet. How, how do you say it? Spandau Ballet. Spandau Ballet is um, Martin Kemp and Steve Norman. So, I mean, this this was huge at the time. Um, but did you get Roy the Rovers? Was that that time period or were you passed it then? I was Too past old. it, I was past it. I, I don't mean were you passed it, I mean were you passed that time. But um, it was huge at the time. Like, oh, there were sensational transfers. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the way Roy worked though. He was thought outside the box. Yeah. Yeah, you just you couldn't you couldn't even you couldn't write it. Could he make it up? You couldn't write it. No. Um, so he helped them to the so he helped uh, Melchester Rovers to the League Cup glory and set a record-breaking successive number of clean sheets. He would have been in his mid forties when he joined there. So he's married to Megs in 1964, and they've got three children. His, his daughter Anna sadly died in 1998 from cancer, and this led to them. Um, founding the Willow Foundation being set up in her memory um, he's got a career total of 234 games and 125 clean sheets I mean that is that is pretty impressive that the band Half Men Half Biscuit wrote a song called Bob Wilson Anchorman have you heard it? I must have done but okay we'll, we'll take that as a yes uh, I've seen I've seen, I've seen Half Men and Half Biscuit live right. although you know they have you know Hundreds and hundreds of songs. So. Yeah. There we go. So Bob Wilson, you know, I think I think he's maybe had a, a bad press along the way, or I think some. I do think I do think Scottish a lot of Scottish people just do have a negative opinion of him. He he was quite negative in terms of Alan Ruff, if I remember as well at the time, mm. um, and Scottish goalkeepers. So yeah, I think that kicked against the green a bit. And there's all these people are now negative against Alan Ruff, and it's probably the same people that were giving Bob Wilson a hard time for being negative. And that's a that's a world, isn't it? We're fickle, fickle. So next page, million to one chance gets Barry back quicker. So this is talking about Roy Barry, and it starts off by saying it may sound Irish, but Coventry centre half Roy Barry had a little bit of luck when he broke a leg. So this is this, um, yeah. Things that are back to front are a bit, bit silly, sound Irish, um, which, you know, wouldn't really be tolerated much these days. Um, he was born in Edinburgh in 1942. He was a defender and he played with Hearts between 61 and 66, moved to Dunfermline, uh, went to Coventry City, then Crystal Palace, came up, um, then had a bit of time with Hibs, East Fife, and finished his playing days at Nuneaton Borough. He married, managed at East Fife and Oxford United. Um, he was a captain of the family in 1968 when they won the Scottish Cup and he regrets not being able to do a lap of honour around Hamden. Apparently the previous years, surprise, surprise, <laughs> there was trouble with Celtic Rangers and, you know, essentially he went to go on. A policeman stopped him and Roy hit him on the head, um, I think with a trophy or something like that. And Roy's quoted as saying, I was a bit put off with that, but I didn't get arrested. So well done to the, the policeman for not um, taking that too far. He was apparently forced to leave Scotland because of a bad boy image. Um, although he was only sent off twice and banned twice for three cautions while at heart. So it, it doesn't appear to have a bad record. So I don't know where the bad boy image comes from. Uh, while at Coventry in a game against Sheffield Wednesday, he went into a 50-50 with Tommy Craig 
and he came off worst, um, suffering a broken leg. Um, it was obvious it was a serious injury and it affected the team. It was 14 months before he returned to action and he went to, on to play nearly 100 games. He got a broken nose from a challenge from Ron Harris's boot. There we go. That's that. That Ron Harris again. Ron Chopper Harris again. Chopper Harris, yeah. Um, so the article talks about the broken leg. It says the broken foot was checked and a surgeon was worried that it would be necessary to fit the fragments and pin the bone. But when the morning came for the surgery, the surgeon had found that the shattered bones had miraculously fitted back into place. They called off the operation. That seems a wee bit far-fetched to me. Yeah. It seems a wee bit of Highway to Heaven. You remember Highway to Heaven? Michael Landon? Yeah. That, that seems what that was. Um, the doctors were amazed and so were we, said Coventry Secretary Eddie Plumley. Um, we had figured on him being out for a year, but now is expected to be back in action by Christmas. So, but as it as it had been noted before, it actually took him fourteen months. So, even though that surgery didn't take place, then he wasn't back anytime soon. He said of the tackle, uh, one thing. This 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 is something for me that that says a lot about the man. He says one thing I'm pleased about is that Tommy Craig was not seriously injured when I went into the tackle. So they went in a 50-50, he's broke his leg and he's still worried about the other guy. So I think that's that says a lot for the man. He'd already had his comeback mapped out. He said, uh, we're going to get the plaster off in August, light train in September, and Bill Dump will be back playing by Christmas. So I think at this point in the article, they, you know, they obviously don't realise how serious it was and how long it was going to take. It was... Later to suffer a suspected broken pelvis as well, so he didn't have to look far for, for the bad luck um, while playing against Ipswich, but it turned out to be no more than extensive bruising. He took a knee in the pelvis from Alan Hunter. So, I mean, Alan, another one who's well-known, who's a, you know, not like um, Harris, but he, he was, a, he was a, a strong physical player. He says, the pain was unbearable. I could have cried when my teammates waved for the, the stretcher. Um, after coming back from a broken leg, it took Roy some time to find his form again. He was dropped and substituted with alarming regularity and eventually transfer listed. And that Coventry boss Gordon Milne was relieved that no one came in for him when he was transfer listed. He would later team up at Coventry with the likes of Tommy Hutchinson and Colin Steen. Uh, after Coventry, he went to Crystal Palace before moving back to Scotland with Hibs. At this point, he'd been captain at every team he'd represented. Um, he once hit out at the admission of Scotland's prov provincial players from the international team while at Dunfermline. And he's considered by many at the time to be the country's top centre-half. Um, but he'd by, by that time all but given up on the chance of getting a call-up. And he's, he's um, quoted as saying, I'm not afraid to criticise the Scotland selection because I know... I haven't a ghost of a chance of ever wearing that dark blue jersey. So I mean, that there is a, certainly a an ongoing theme of a lot of players in the the provincial clubs around that sort of time that they just felt ah, that there's no way that I'm going to get um, a call up here. I think it's probably based on fact, isn't it, David? Um, is it fact? Is it? Do you uh, know you you need to think that for every position <laughs> there was there was four or five good players. Do you mean? Roy Barry centre half, so you think Billy McNeil mm -hmm. didn't he get a look in too much because Ronnie McKinnon was there, yeah. Ian Ewer was there, so there were other players there. Um, 
McClintock, who we mentioned earlier, they're all of, of that era, so mm. there's plenty of competition. That's the thing. I mean, McClintock's complaining about the English players not getting yep. it, and then Roy Barry's complaining about the 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 non-old firm players getting it, and and them. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, yeah it's true. I mean, if you look at and see where players have come from at these times, there's very few come from the likes of Deferman. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did say that in the article that you've got a greater chance of selection if you're a Celtic or Rangers player or playing in England. So well, I mean, well, we know that's true. Yeah, we know that's true today. You know. Yeah. Celtic to sign a provincial player tomorrow. Strain. Come next week, we'll oh, the Scotland team. You know, it's happened. It's happened so many times. Yeah. And Jack um, Henry. Scott Bain recently, isn't it? Roy obviously moved to England and still didn't get a, a Scotland cap. Um, so, he, he, you know, he said, yeah, you have to move to England um, or be in an old firm. So maybe he had to join one of the old firm teams um, because moving to England didn't help him. But this may have been re- related to the broken leg that he had. So I think he's, you know, he had some serious injuries and it, it did affect his form. Um, so I don't think he was ever the, the same player that he was. Um, so at this point, what we're going to do, so you're aware of, and not so much in goal, I don't think, but in shoot magazines and match magazines, they have this focus on feature mm-hmm. where they ask a player questions. Yep. So now is your, it's your chance for a focus on. I'm going to fire some some questions to you, and if you can just give us a wee answer. And what we'll do is at some point we'll mock up one of these focus okay. ons specifically for you. So here we go. What's your full name? David Robert Stewart. What's your place of birth? Glasgow. What was your first car? I don't drive, so I've never had a car. Okay. Unless your... it's a Corgi or a Matchbox, maybe <laughs> then. Can... What's your favourite player? Uh, probably Alan Ruff. Alan Ruff. Favourite team? Partick Thistle. What's your most memorable match? Um, League Cup final, 1971. Yeah. Have to go with that, I suppose. Were you there? I was. Brilliant. What's your biggest thrill? Oh, this right now. This is, <laughs> is the correct answer. Um, what's your biggest disappointment? No, not this. <laughs> um, I'm a Thistle supporter and a Scotland supporter. <laughs> Disappointments, you know. Just I take one. Them easy. Just one. <laughs> Just one. I, I suppose the 1978 World Cup's a big one, isn't it? Mm. Okay. What's the best country you visited? Uh, Petersburg in Russia I was there for a couple of days a few years back it was lovely yeah. um, but I love Greece I go to Greece, Greece every year okay what's your favourite food? Uh, steak is it not supposed to be is that not supposed to be the answer? It's supposed to be and he's been leading a lot of people to say ah, steak, steak. No, right. such the first thing. Person that's... no such thing how dare you Steak and chips, did you say? Uh, no, I know. <laughs> uh, what is your favourite food? Uh, I don't know. I'm not a big foodie, to be honest. It's one of the foods, one of the, it's quite a functional thing to me. I don't, yeah. It doesn't even bother me, what, you know. Okay. Pizza, okay. probably, you know. Put, yeah. put that in there. Miscellaneous dislikes. So give me two things that you like. Eh... Uh, I don't know. Well, buying books for a start. I love buying books, and I, like, I love being, going to charity shops and just finding stuff, and mm-hmm. you know, um, I love selling stuff on eBay and I sell CDs on eBay and things. I yeah. love that. Okay, um, miscellaneous dislikes. So, give me two things that drive you up the wall. 
Uh, I suppose at the moment Brexit would have to be there. It'd be political, but, you know, it just drives me nuts the way mm -hmm. people, you know, fixate on it at the moment, but there's not much we can do about that. Or not, reality TV is still... Good shout, good shout. <laughs> the next question, what's your favourite TV show? <laughs> it's better not be a reality TV show. Um, I've just finished watching the, the whole Justified recently, and I really enjoyed that. Um, it, it's tense. I imagine it's going to be an American series that, you know, mm. you binge watch and things like that. Um, but I suppose Justified at the moment would be the best I've seen for a while. Okay. Favourite singers or singer? Who's your favourite singer? Um, like I said, John Mellencamp, Don Henley and things like that. They're among some of my favourites. Um, Ryan Adams. Yeah. Um, the whole host of stuff, you know. A lot of country music, I suppose. Right, okay. Favourite actor or actors? Um, I suppose Nicholson's one of the favourites. Um, you know, then James Stewart. James I suppose Stewart. you're going back to some of the older ones. Mm -hmm. Who's your best friend? Uh, my mate Ben Campbell, he's been my friend since secondary school. Mm hmm I don't see him that much, probably once a year I catch yeah. up, you know, but he's still my best mate and, you know, just one of those sentences, who's your best friend, it's like, that's who it is. Good. Don't tell my wife, though. <laughs> who's been the biggest influence on you? Um, I, I, I suppose in many ways, you know, my dad and some, you know, you maybe not think it, it's there, but yeah. it, it's there. My dad wrote a lot of books and collected a lot of stuff. You know, what sort of books did he write? He wrote, um, you've probably seen them, the Stenlake publishing books like Old Springburn, More Old Springburn, Old Townhead. Right, OK. Um, books like that, so, you know, and he was a great collector, mm -hmm. you know, postcards and books and things like that. So do, you I think, think it, do you think that's rubbed off on you or do you think you're just your own thing about that? No, I think that's there. I think just that kind of, you know... I suppose it's a wee selfish streak in a way. You, mm. You've got these things, you know, that you've got. I think I got that from him, you know. Mm. I mean, you say selfish, but the fact is, like me, you, you share it all. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's... It's all about sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, last one. Which person in the world would you most like to meet? Mm. I don't know. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not very big in adulation, do you know what I mean? It's not a thing of... <laughs> You know, yeah. I, I saw a recent interview with John Mellencamp with Sammy Hager, and, and he seems quite an interesting guy. I would probably just tell me to piss off. He seems quite <laughs> an angry guy as well. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's, it's somebody like that. You know, it's somebody that I've listened to over the years. And, yeah. You know, how do just uh, this one of these questions? But have you, who's your hero? Football hero is it? Would it be rough? Probably rough. And, and, it, and have, you, have you met him? Um, yes and no. I have they met him? And, you know, introduced myself, you know. Yeah. Just sort of uh, passing, I, shaking just hands. Just seen him passing, sort of, uh, and uh, up at Fur Hill, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Would that, that be something, I guess, you... Is that... Cause it's, so, it's, some it's, people say, never meet your heroes and stuff, and I've already said, no, listen, from me, meet your hero. It, it's not a big thing. Right. To me, do you know what I mean? It, it, you know. Yeah. It doesn't involve like a claw handshake. No, or it doesn't. Like you know, and 
not letting them go for a wee while, you know. <laughs> Nothing yeah, like it's, that. It's, it's a, it was all about just creating that bond and making sure it didn't go anywhere other than where I wanted it to go. Keeping the moment. No, good answers. Um, we'll just, uh, Tom. Well, yeah, I was, I was going to jump in. As, as a long-suffering Scotland fan, David, what was your, your favourite era been following Scotland? I suppose it, it's that, you know, people talk about the 74 team and I'm kind of 76, you know, just where you've got Jordan at full flow, you've got Doug Leash, you've you've got Masson and Rierk at the top of their game. I, I think, you know, they they were kind of unbeatable, you know, in beating England twice, of course, in yeah. 76 and 77. They just loved the football they played. So what's your hopes for the national team going forward at the moment? The hope is that we qualify that, is it? You know, you think it's achievable, two games? I think it is, you know. But we need to be at our best and a wee bit of luck, which we don't carry a lot, you know. That's we might true. need that too, you know. I've got tickets for the final, so <laughs> I'm getting at home against East Scotland and no Serbia and Croatia. <laughs> Although I might be selling my ticket for that one, who knows? And so, in, in terms of um, books, David, do you have any plans for a a third? Yes, but we like to keep them under wraps, uh, you know, because we don't like people stealing our ideas. Of course, the, the last one isn't long out, so I mean, that's still you must still have some to sell. Oh, thousands! Well, you know. but there's no way we can get it. And well, yeah, of course, you can get it on Amazon and get it in any good bookshop. Mm-hmm. And I Particularly think, particularly if you go in and ask them and order it, you know, yeah. Because it's, it's kind of hard to get the word out there if you're not part of the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. It, it's very hard for anybody to I, take an interest. I in mean, it. I do genuinely believe that, you know, if it was publicised to the sort of degree that some of the big books are, that it would absolutely sell, like, hotcakes. I mean, it, it was always my thought, you know, if that went into Asda last year, mm-hmm. you know, it just would have sold yeah. quite easily. Um because there's no mistaking what it's about going by the going by the cover. <laughs> no. So you, but you also um, you patrol the Scotland games before at Hamden and stuff and selling the the fanzine. Yeah, that's that's great fun. If anybody's ever sold a fanzine, they'll know how much fun that is mm. in the rain. Um, so where can they normally get you? Do you go to the same place? <sighs> we normally on the Facebook page announce it a couple of days later. Yeah. Where, uh, before we ever going to be, you know. Most of the time, it's some of old drivers, just two years, you know. Mm. It's sad sack standing together. <laughs> we did try standing by yourself, but that just attracts the wrong people, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll share the links to the Facebook group and your Twitter um, when the podcast comes out as well. Thanks. So I'm just going to have a quick read. So we have our, um, our charity partner back on side. So from their, their website, it says, Here in the UK, one in four people will experience a mental health illness each year. Mental health includes a person's emotional, psychological and social well-being. An obvious widespread problem, yet it is estimated that only a quarter of sufferers receive ongoing treatment, leaving the majority of the UK population tackling these debilitating issues on their own. Here at Back On Side, we have recognised this ongoing dilemma and are determined to rebuild a society where no young person or adult is left tackling mental health problems alone. So as Back On Side, um, they do... I keep saying they do fantastic work um, we want everybody to support them and as part of that with the, the podcast we, we have a donate button and we'll, we'll provide the link to that 
essentially for every pound that you donate, you get an entry into a raffle. And as part of that, it will be the mag the actual original magazine that we've discussed today, as well as a supersized copy of it as well that we'll, everyone here will sign. And we'll maybe throw in a few other wee goodies as well. So if you donate £5, that's you got five entries to that. So we'll make all that information available to you. And half of that will go directly to the charity back on side. And the remainder of that will go to the podcast to keep us to keep us um, going here. So firstly, support the back on side. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing here, you know, support ourselves as well. Um, and on that, I'd just like to thank, thank you, David, for coming along again and, and joining in. It's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. No, I have. It's been great just to early away a couple of hours talking mm. about football. Yeah, as we would be doing otherwise anyway. Yeah. And um, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Andy. And uh, thank you for listening and for downloading the podcast. Uh, please share it and tell people about it. And until the next one, let's shoot the breeze. Shoot the breeze.